I'm a very successful man. I'm a multimillionaire. My income puts me at top 2% of all Americans. My day job, I advise to several hundred million dollars in the stock market. I've been recognized as one of America's top 10 financial advisors. I've been married faithfully for 31 years to my first wife. These are our kids a couple years ago. Our daughter, Alicia, is now married to a neat young man. She's a vet tech. He's a lawyer. They're expecting our first grandchild in November. Our son, Luke, has finished college. He is winning his cancer fight. He was diagnosed with leukemia 15 months ago. My wife, after being a homemaker for 24 years, is now an associate pastor at a Methodist church in our community. But I'm the end of the story. I'm an end of the story that the hosts who brought me in, Royal Family Kids Camp, outrageously thinks can happen again. You see, my story really begins when I was three years old. My father abandoned my mother and I, put a gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and blew out part of his brains. But he didn't kill himself, and for the next 26 years was a walking vegetable in a mental hospital. He had a college degree, a master's degree from prestigious Northwestern University. He could walk, but he could not talk. He could put food in his mouth, but not always chew and swallow because of the bullet damage. He could put his pants on, but not remember where or when to go to the bathroom. And for 26 years, wore diapers till the day he died. My mother had enormous emotional and psychological problems that she had masked. But as always in marriage, those masks come down. And three months after my father's failed suicide attempt, she drugged me by train from Chicago to a little town called Princeton, Illinois. Three-year-olds aren't supposed to remember much, but I've learned that kids like us, we either block it out and we never remember, or we never forget. And I'm not going to forget that day. There's snow on the sidewalks. The train station's five blocks from this strange building. My mother's dragging me faster than my three-year-old legs can walk. I'm whimpering. Something's wrong. And my mother's yelling, shut up, Robbie. Shut up. And she drags me into this great big strange building, commands me to sit on a floor and play blocks with a strange boy. And I reach for a block and he steals it. And I reach for a block and he steals it. And I turn to my mother for help, and she's gone. She didn't say, I love you. She, she didn't say, I'll come back and get you when you're, I'm well. She's just gone. And a woman whose name and face I don't remember says, your mother's sick, Robbie. She's taking the train back to Chicago. She'll come get you when she's well. And I honestly remember rising up off that floor in three-year-old clumsiness and screaming. No. No. And running to the nearest door, but I'm only three and I can't reach the handle. And this woman says, quit crying or I'll spank you. I cannot quit crying. My mother has abandoned me. And this strange woman picks me up and spanks me over and over and over again until the pain of being spanked is worse than the pain of being abandoned. 
That night I wet the bed and she spanks me again. As punishment puts two brown rubber sheets on the bed, makes me lie between them all day long. And they're hot. And they squeak when I move. And I do remember the voices of these strange little boys in the strange place I've been abandoned, laughing, because the new kid's a pee-pee baby. And then my memories go blank for a while. One of my next memories is a wonderful dorm mother named Nola. Nola was a northern Minnesota farm girl in Bible college when she felt called to work with kids like us. She always dressed modestly, those pedal pusher pants, goofy cat eye glasses, kept her hair cut short. Uh, I asked her one time, Nola, how come you don't do your hair? She said, I don't have time to do my hair and mess with all you youngins. I am not making this up. On any given day, Nola had between 10 and 16 little boys, 24 hours a day, five and a half days a week, by herself. It's mind-boggling. These photographs are all from my Focus on the Family book, Castaway Kid. All the proceeds here go to Royal Family Kids Camp. And we may come back to this picture in a minute, but I, I want you to look at that and notice I'm the little boy on your left. I'm four years old. And I have rolled up pant legs and suspenders, as do half the other little boys in that photograph. That was not to be stylish. Kids like us are jerked around by adults all the time without explanations and often, just like me, dropped off with nothing but the clothes on our back. Kids like us wear other people's clothing every day. The children's home had 60 kids on any given day, broken in four groups, little boys, little girls, big boys, big girls. Obviously, at three, I'm on little boys. We had a small farm, vegetable garden, uh, hogs, chickens, uh, uh, and uh, we had lots of chores to do, which is probably a good thing. Growing up in a children's home, there are probably about two adjectives that best describe it. One is very regimented. Nothing happened till the bell rang. But before the bell rang to get up, Nola would get up every morning, go in the locker room, lay out somebody else's clothes for the boy she had. The bell would ring at seven, we'd stampede into the bathroom, two toilets, 10 to 16 little boys. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> Clamor in the locker room, get dressed, line up like a ragtag army, punching and shoving, stomp downstairs, breakfast is 7.30, lunch is noon, cookies and bug juice at three o'clock, 5.30 supper, and then they lock the kitchen. If you're hungry at 8 o'clock at night, tough. Go to the bathroom, cup your hand, drink tap water. They weren't being mean. There just wasn't any money for cookies and snacks and the staff to set it up and clean it up. After supper, Nola would get us in our pajamas, take us back into our one uh, living room, she put the littlest boys on the couch next to her and the biggest little boys on the floor. And this was Bible story time. Nola did not tolerate goofing off in Bible story time. I have very, very clear memories of her holding a Bible story book in one hand and smacking a misbehaving boy with the other. <laughs> and we saw no theological conflict with that whatsoever. <laughs> 
You know, South, they say you go from preaching to meddling, but uh, (laughs) he might need some meddling. (laughs) And then she'd take us to bed one by one. Littlest one's first. First bedtime was 7.30. And she'd always say a prayer and hug us and kiss us and say, Remember, Robbie, God loves you and I love you. But you know, it was pretty easy to believe Nola loved me. But if this Jesus she talks about is so loving, how come my life is such a mess? Where is this God? We slept four to six to a bedroom, industrial strength beds. You couldn't break them. We tried. (laughs) Nola had a room on the floor. It's not an apartment. It was a room. And she'd go put her jammas on and keep the door open to hear what was going on. And I remember getting up and paddling to the bathroom one night and and hearing her praying for each of us by name. And see, that's really special to kids like us. Royal family does such a good job because kids like us, we are invisible and we know we're invisible and we know that most of the world doesn't know and really doesn't want to know about us. But when somebody knows your name, you are no longer invisible. I come paddling out of the bathroom and Nola hollers, go to bed, Robbie. And I remember wondering, how do you know who I am just by the sound of my footsteps? But Nola knew her boys. So I go knock on the door. I say, what you doing, Nola? Praying we behave? (laughs) And in her matter-of-fact northern Minnesota manner, she said, no, Robbie. I am praying that God helps me find something to love in each one of you. And see, that's not really easy with kids like us. Because kids like us show up, we don't know why, we're just dropped off. Kids like us show up with our past, we show up with our abuse, we show up with our nightmares, we show up with our anger, and we show up with our rage. Kids like us are not always very lovable. But Noah believed that inside each of one of us, there was still something that God Almighty could help her love. And she wasn't going to give up. The other thing that I would say describes my 14 years growing up in a children's home is desperate loneliness. Yeah, there were 60 kids plus staff, but you can be desperately lonely in lots of situations, and we were. Because you see, kids are egocentric. We think that everything happens in life because of who we are. And that's not right, but to us it's real. I had lunch in Beverly Hills and carved out an extra hour recently to go to the one and only Bugatti car dealership in America. Any of you gearheads know what a Bugatti is? fastest legal streetcar sold in America. The cheap one is $1.2 million. I want to see what one looked like. But the kids who grew up in Beverly Hills mansions, whose parents can buy Bugattis, those kids think they were born to deserve their childhood. And that's not right, but to them it's real. But for kids like us, abandoned, orphaned, castaway kids, We think we deserve our childhoods, and sometimes adults say it to our face. And they're lying. I know it now, they're lying. 
As I've gone through life, I've learned there's lots of different kinds of desperate loneliness. There's a single person who longs to be married and goes to sleep alone and wakes up alone and sometimes just wants to scream, why not me? Why can't a good person want to marry me? There's a person who's been left behind by death or divorce and sometimes even the death of a spouse feels like abandonment. But you can be in a marriage and be desperately lonely. A marriage that maybe was once close and warm is now cold and distant. You can be desperately lonely in a marriage. But there's another kind of loneliness that I've come to learn, and that's the loneliness of emotional and psychological affliction, of anxiety attacks and panic attacks and depression and clinical depression and bipolar disease, schizophrenia. And these are a darkness that just surround the afflicted person. And oftentimes there's someone in their life who really wants to bring in the light of hope. But the afflicted person does not know how to open their heart and let hope in. And I'm not going to put you on the spot as far as yourself or your immediate family, but quietly, do any of you know someone afflicted by depression, clinical depression, schizophrenia, panic attacks, anxiety attacks. Yeah. It's all over. Mine was the desperate loneliness of the abandoned, unwanted child. And I will assure you, it is a deep, dark, desperate loneliness. My mother was gone for three years before she showed up again. I was on the playground. It was not a secured facility. And someone hollers, Robbie, your mother's here. And I'm so happy. And I go running up because you see, kids like us, we always want to go home. We think somehow if we can get home, our lives will be better. And I spoke the other day at three of your lockdown youth facilities, and it was more interactive. And I asked each one of them, are you safer here at home? And the vast majority of them said here. I am safer here in lockdown juvie hall than whatever we call home. But we want to go home. And so I go running up and break into the uh, room where my mother's standing there yelling and cussing at Nolan. I remember thinking, why are you cussing at her? She's a good person. And I run up and I hug her leg. I'm almost six. And the next thing I remember was how bad she smelled because alcoholics and substance abusers smell bad, don't they? And she keeps yelling and screaming. I'm thinking, shut up, let's get the train, let's go home. She stops and she looks down at me and she says, I gotta go. She didn't say I love you. She didn't say I'm sorry I've been gone for three years. I gotta go. And she just walked away. And she did that to me over and over again in my childhood. And the first time I was so stunned, I could not cry. I was seven years old in second grade the night I lost hope. It was a bitter cold February night. You all understand those. We had these steam radiators either blasted you out because they're too hot or too cold and made these weird clanking sounds. And kids like us, we hate the nighttime. We hate the nighttime. 
Because nighttime is when the nightmares and the abuse come. And if you're the last one asleep, maybe it'll be a good night. And I had to face the reality at seven years old that nobody was going to rescue me. And when a little boy cries out as hope dies, it is a groaning too deep for words. And Nola came and held me, but then had to tend another kid. And when I finished crying, I made a vow that night that the big boys could beat me in physical pain. They had beaten me, they were beating me, and they were going to beat me. But no one's getting to my heart again. No one. I won't be tough no matter what. It's called emotional flatlining. And it is the beginning of a dangerous creature. A kid who doesn't care. I was only seven. It was just a little boy's vow. But it is the vow of the unrescued all over the world. In America today, there are over 400,000 kids in the social welfare system. 100,000 are eligible to be adopted. There are approximately 100 million households in America. Not people, households. This is not a 10% solution. This is not a 1% solution. This is a 0.1% solution. If 0.1% of American households adopted kids eligible to be adopted, there would be no more kids in America left to adopt. Globally, there are over 160 million kids abandoned, orphaned, castaway kids. I was at an adoption banquet a couple years ago. The speaker was a woman named Lisa Turcoast, president of Proverbs 31 Ministries. As you can see, Lisa's white, her husband's white. They had three white biological children. And through a set of circumstances, felt called to adopt two teenage boys from Africa. And she shares this story. Now, guys, I know we think we're brave and strong, but I don't know many men who would go in Walmart with five kids by himself. <laughs> no amens? And so they're in Walmart, and, and they're chatting, mommy this and mommy that. And I don't know if you've noticed this about Walmart, but there are people in Walmart who will say out loud whatever walks across their brain. <laughs> it's astonishing. And they're standing there realizing this woman wants to be acknowledged. And so they stop and look at her, and I'm not making this up. This woman says, different fathers, huh? And before Lisa can think of what to say, her littlest girl, this little redhead girl in the pink shirt, looks at this rude woman, cocks her little girl hip, and good North Carolina style says, let me explain. When my mommy was pregnant with my brother, she drank chocolate milk. I share that because I do not think 
that love is racist. When we are called to take care of widows and orphans in their distress, it says nothing about the color of their skin. Why not white-skinned parents mentoring, fostering, adopting, rescuing kids of other skin colors? And why not African-Americans rescuing, mentoring, fostering, adopting kids of other skin colors? And why not Asians and Hispanics mentoring, fostering, adopting, rescuing kids of other skin colors? Why not? Kids like us don't care. We do not care if your hair is blonde and straight, brown and wavy, or black and tight. We just want a mom. We just want a dad. We just want someone to rescue us. Please. I was not to be rescued. Summer before sixth grade, Nola dropped a bomb on me. She said, Robbie, I've got too many little boys. You're the oldest. You're going to big boys. And I remember protesting, saying, no, I'm a little squirt. I don't even have hair on my legs. <laughs> These are 16, 17, 18-year-old punks. I'm going to get hurt up there. She said, I know, and I'm sorry. She wasn't being mean. She was overwhelmed. And I got my box of stuff because kids like us stay in guest mode all the time. I remember going up to big boys and some punk hollering, fresh meat, while the punk's laughing. I hated big boys. I really hated big boys. From sixth grade to ninth grade, I got beat on every day of my life. It wasn't optional. But when you're in the system a long time, you learn how to hurt people in ways that don't show bruises or draw blood because then you get kicked out of there to juvie hall or someplace worse. You get real clever in learning how to inflict pain. One of the other things I hated about big boys was you could walk to elementary school, but now we had to ride our bus. Big, ugly, yellow bus said, Covenant Children's Home. Paint me as, with a paintball as being different. And the bullies get meaner come middle school and high school. Girls may not beat you with their fists, but they can slice you with their words. And kids like us, we seem to be easy targets. And my hot button was, what's wrong with you, Robbie? You must be so bad, even your parents don't want you. And then this is what happens with an angry teenage boy. Someone punches our button, we check out, we see red, we end up at the principal's office, says the same stupid thing, what were you thinking? And the honest truth is we weren't. Many times we don't even remember what happened. And that's not right, but it's real. I tried to blow my anger out in sports. I really did. Basketball, cross-country, track, weightlifting. My peak, I bench-pressed 350. My freshman year, I ran the mile under five minutes, qualified for district. Some of the Regular kids in town thought I was a little arrogant and, and needed some humbling, and I'm sure I was arrogant. They decided to trap me in the, in the locker room, give me a red belly. Now, some of you genteel Pennsylvania women may not know what that is, but that's when they hold you down against your will, pull your shirt up, and slap your hand, your stomach open-handed over and over again until big, ugly red welts develop. 
and the pain and the shame last for weeks. And it was a whale of a fight, and I hurt them good. But the word went out to the regular kids in school, if you wanted Mitchell, you need three. Because what these regular kids did not understand was how angry I was. I had had it. I was abandoned when I was three. Somebody should have rescued me. Nobody did. I was tired of the beating. I was tired of the social ostracism. I did not care. Some of you know deep anger. Some of you have had a spouse that betrayed you, and that cuts deep. Some of you had one or both parents abandon or abuse you, and that cuts deep. Especially in the last couple of years, some of you have lost jobs, and you will never get a job at that same income, and you know it, and you're angry. Some of you have a loved one dealing with neurological diseases like cerebral palsy or multiple sclerosis, and they did not deserve this, and you're angry. Some of you had a child die first. Your child is not supposed to die first, and you're angry. And some of you have someone you love like I do my son who are fighting cancer and they did not deserve it. I understand anger. I really understand anger. By my junior year in high school, my anger blew me out of sports. I could blame the coaches. It was me. And I was drinking heavy, doing marijuana, I didn't do anything heavier than that because if you did, I got kicked out of here to someplace worse. And I'd already been in juvie prison. I wasn't going back. But kids like us, we drink too much, we do drugs, we do inappropriate sex, and we cut ourselves to either dull the pain or to feel something or both. And that's not right, but it's real. The home started realizing they were losing, especially the boys, big time. Uh, they were not coming out whole, dead or in prison, or lives of meaningless existence. Something had to change. So they started something today we'd call a mentoring program, much like Royal Family Kids Camp is doing. These weren't celebrities looking for photo opportunities. These were ordinary men. Now, I don't remember what they were doing for the girls but in America today, 90% of the prisoners are male. 90%. I'm not ignoring the at-risk girls, but 90% are male. It costs about 120,000 a year to incarcerate a man in prison, a federal prison. About 60,000 a year to incarcerate a man in a state prison. It is cheaper to build boys than fix men. Some of the men who impacted me, it was a guy named Jim who taught me to lift weights in ham radio. A guy named Bob who taught me to hunt in the, and walk in the woods in the dark and not trip and fall and tell time by the sun and stars, and I still don't wear a watch. Drives my wife crazy. A guy named Swanee loved the wilderness and 
would take groups of us whitewatering, backpacking. Because of Swanee, I've backpacked many of the American ranges, run many of the American whitewaters, backpacked the Swiss and German Alps, lived in the remote jungles of the Congo, at 20 drove a pickup truck 2,500 miles across Africa because an ordinary man showed me I could. And a guy named Marv who taught me to drive a car with a push-button transmission. Any of you remember those? Yeah, you're old. (laughs) They're old Chryslers and Plymouths of the 60s and 70s. But these were ordinary guys, and they didn't have fancy words. They didn't have five alphabets behind their last name. But what they understood and what they did was that love is a four-letter word spelled T-I-M-E. You want kids like us to know you care. You have to keep showing up. And maybe we'll listen. And Royal Family Kids Camp keeps showing up. But I wasn't listening. The summer before my senior year in high school, I got invited to be a lifeguard and swim instructor at Covenant Harbor Bible Camp in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I thought they were nuts to hire a punk like me. But this was great because now I'm not Robbie from the children's home. I get to be Rob, and I get to engage in my favorite sport, which was hunting and catching silly girls. (laughs) I love that sport. They wanted to be caught, I wanted to catch them. What's the problem? (laughs) Problem is all these goody two-shoe Christian girls work in the camp. I kid you not, one of them got in my face with a frying pan, said, you get out of line, I'm going to smack you. And I remember wondering, where do you breed females like this? (laughs) And why? They seriously messed with my agenda. But one week, this cute, blonde-haired, blue-eyed minister's daughter showed up. Forget the frying pan. I looked at this girl, and I said, Roof, this hound's going to hunt. And the hunt was on. And it's day two. We're on the canoe. I'm trying to impress her and make time. And she says, Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. Huh? Now, girls, especially young girls, you may not know this, but written on the heart of every young male is overcoming objections to silly girls. This one's not in there. I said, I don't have a relationship with Jesus. I don't buy this loving Heavenly Father stuff. It does not fit my reality. I thought that in that conversation. She says, I don't think you've examined the evidence. Huh? Now, for some of the teenage girls in the room, I I don't know if you've noticed this about teenage boys, but some of us will do stupid at a really high level just to impress you. You Look at that grin on his face. He resembles that remark. Look at the grin on his face. That was 50 years ago. He still remembers. We do. And then we go back to where we're living. We look in the mirror. We go, boy, that was stupid. (laughs) We're proud of it. I don't know how the species survives. I really don't. She's cute. It's a book. I'm going to impress her. 
So I start reading some of the Jesus books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Nola had Bible stories, and we were drugged to church. And I've heard testimonies where people say, Jesus was never preached in my church. I don't buy that anymore. I never heard it. There's a difference. I thought Jesus walked three feet above the ground, never got his feet dirty. I don't mean to sound blasphemous, but we had this famous painting hanging in our, our dining room with Jesus in the garden, knock on the door. That guy looked like a wimp. He had long hair, wore a dress, clean fingernails. <laughs> like I could relate. But I started reading the Jesus books. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He got tired. He got his feet dirty. He got betrayed by people he should have been able to trust. That one I understood. He talked about this spiritual water that, that he would give you that would take all your anxiety away. And when you live 24 hours a day in rage, you are exhausted by it. And the idea that something can take it away is outrageous. You know, the disciples said, we saw him killed and die on a cross. We put him in the ground, we rolled a stone over it, we buried him, and three days later he was walking among us. I'm like, oh, come on, give me a break. What kind of intelligent person thinks that fairy tale is true? But then I kept reading that the 12 who hung with him most, they called them disciples. One of them killed himself. The other 11 were beaten by the authorities, thrown in jail, said, don't talk about this, Jesus, or we'll kill you. And their response was, I cannot quit speaking of what I have seen and heard. And these 11 men took torture and death instead of denying who Jesus was. And I will assure you, I would not find 11 punks in the children's home I grew up with who would allow themselves to be tortured and killed to repeat a lie and a joke on humanity. Whoever this Jesus was, he radically impacted these men unto death. Jesus said, you need to repent of your sins, of the things you've thought, said, and done that offend God. And I'm like, stop the bus, I'm getting off. Why should I apologize to a God who would put me in an orphanage for 14 years? No. God owes me an apology. And I walked away. But as I've come to learn, God patiently waits and zealously pursues. And he's chasing someone here right now. And eventually I came back and started reading. And all my struggles end up boiling down to one thing. Why? If this is a holy God, then this God knows what I've thought, knows what I've said, knows what I've done to others, and knows what I've done to myself. I cannot clean up good enough for this God. And I'm no longer going to try and play the game of being the cutest puppy dog in the foster care window. I ain't doing that again. So why? Why would a holy God want someone wearing, a kid wearing someone else's clothes whose heart is covered with scars and dirt? 
And I read as your pastor said today, if you honestly believe in me and you ask God to forgive you, God will. It doesn't make you good enough. It makes you acceptable. September of my senior year in high school, I don't remember the day. I was by myself in the children's home and I prayed a simple prayer. I said, Jesus, if you're real and you will forgive someone like me and I see the change, then I'm yours. I did not hear angels sing. I did not roll around the floor in some kind of spiritual ecstasy. But I'm telling you the truth. In a moment I knew that the holy God of the universe had reached out of heaven and touched the heart of an angry, bitter punk in an American children's home and began to change my life. And it was process. Some days it was two steps forward, other days two steps back. I still got drunk and stoned for a couple years before I figured out that wasn't God's will. (laughs) Hey, I'm a male. We're slow. (laughs) And eventually this God called me to do something I did not want to do and I did not think I could do. And that was to forgive. Forgive the three people who wounded me the most. My father, because his suicide was abandonment. My mother, for her chaos, she wounded me over and over again, was in and out of my life, in and out of lockdown psychiatric wards against her will, abused alcohol, drugs. I don't know if she prostituted herself. I never asked. Died a bag lady in the streets of Chicago. And my father's mother, who was dead, because my father's family from Atlanta was wealthy. Mitchell Motors, Oldsmobile, Rolls-Royce, Buick, country club servants, mansions. And I was a social embarrassment. And this is a quote. We're so happy you're up there with all these lovely playmates and nannies. And I had to forgive her of apathy. Because apathy is when you can change someone's life and you don't care. But what I learned in the process and struggle of forgiving is forgiving didn't free my dead grandmother, my brain-dead father, or my psychotic mother. They really never could understand it. Forgiving freed me. It freed me of the anger. It freed me of the bitterness. It freed me of the rage. It freed me of the hopelessness that I could be no more than just a kid from a children's home that I could be nothing more than my past said I was doomed to be. And it freed me to become the person God imagined I could be with God's help. And I have been freed since I forgave. And forgiving is not excusing, it is not justifying. And I walk you through that in my book, Castaway Kid. I came face to face with Jesus Christ as an angry, bitter punk at a church camp, much like Royal Family Kids Camp offers. Costs about 600 bucks a week per kid, 120 bucks a day, 60 bucks for half a day, five bucks for one hour. Go as God leads. I don't do guilt trips. Whether it's prayer support, volunteer support, or financial support. 
because Royal Family Kids Camp in Erie believes that there's another Robbie, boy or girl in your community, who they can lead one step closer to a saving knowledge of an amazing Jesus Christ. And I would like to close in prayer before the pastor comes back up. God, of all the things that are important right now, the most important is that your spirit is knocking on the door of someone's heart, gently, lovingly calling them to open the door and let you come in and begin to amaze them. Today's the day. Today's the day to quit fighting. And if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you quietly and privately pray after me, quietly and privately? Dear God, I may not understand it, but I open the door to my heart. Come in and begin to clean me up. Help me believe in Jesus. Help me get involved in Bible study. Help me reach out to the staff here and let them help me. Become the person that God, you imagine I can be. Not the person my past says I'm doomed to be. Lord, I've been blessed to be here at Erie First. Thank you for this leadership team and the congregation. And I pray your richest blessings on them, spiritually, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and financially. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for letting me be your guest.